this is your co-host, Kathy Garrett, with the Twinkie Chronicles podcast, where two twins are shedding light on the childbearing years. And today's episode is going to be all about me. We're going to be talking about my second delivery uh, with my daughter, Chloe Ann, uh, who is now two years old. Uh, So a little bit more about me is I'm 36 years old. I live in Orlando, Florida, originally from Jacksonville, but the beach always called me back home. So I'm a Florida girl through and through. Uh, I've been married to my husband, Eli, for almost five, almost six years. And we have two little girls, Chloe Ann, like I said, who's two. And her older sister, Claire, is now four years old. Um, prior to becoming a mom, uh, I was kind of always in that caregiver role. Starting in middle school, I started working at the barn that I was taking horseback riding lessons at and um, loved it so much. Uh, I took care of the horses, feed them, clean their stalls, uh, took them out to their uh, paddocks, all the whole shebang. Um, and then in college, I started teaching summer camp for horseback riding and lessons as well at college and when I would come home uh, to Jacksonville. Then um, I got super homesick after two years at college, so I came back home and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And long story short, my dad said to me, you have always loved animals. Why don't you try and get a job at the zoo? They're hiring. So I apply for a job. I get hired as a guide. And um, at that point, I decided to go back to school and get my degree in psychology so I could become a zookeeper and work in the animal field. So I finished my bachelor's in about a year and a half. And then had to do or was able to do a couple of uh, internships. Uh, I did one in Florida and one in D.C., and then got my job as a full-time bird trainer at um, Disney's Animal Kingdom. And that was a really great job as well. I loved that job as well. It was so fun to not only be able to take care of the birds and learn a whole lot about birds. I'd never worked with birds prior to getting this job. And I found a new appreciation and love for for different species of birds, but also I was able to care for them, but also teach um, the public about wildlife, about conservation, and uh, the importance of both. So after that, I became a nanny for two years, and again, loved that role as well. And it was such a blessing to our family because I got pregnant shortly after I was, about a month after I was hired, and um during my older daughter Claire's first year of life, I was able to take her to work with me. And that was definitely an adventure because shortly after I became pregnant, my boss became pregnant as well. And so I was taking care of three little girls 15 months apart, but it truly was a blessing and I absolutely loved it. I was also very thankful to my boss who, uh, she worked from home. So anytime I got into a really big pickle, she was always willing to lend a helping hand. So I was very grateful for that. So after I was a nanny for two years, I became a stay at home mom for Claire. And that was truly a dream come true. Um, Years ago, when I was contemplating if I wanted to have children or not, my mom said to me, Kathy, you love children. Why would you not want to have children? And I realized in that moment, like, yes, I absolutely want to have children of my own. And, um, but once I decided to have children, I knew I always wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. 
And when my husband and I got married, we had talked about that, and he was on board with that. But during Claire's first year of life, we weren't quite financially stable enough to become a stay-at-home mom. But then after another year, um, some things had changed, and we were able to do that. And it truly was amazing. Um, and about two or three months after I became a stay-at-home mom, I got pregnant again. And that was such a blessing to just spend time with Claire and, um, you know, as we were welcoming this new life into our family, it truly was just the best season. And I look back on those memories and I can't help but smile. It just was such a sweet, sweet time. So fast forward to um, September when we had our, uh, or when I went into labor with our second daughter, I went into labor on September 18th, only one day after my due date, and progressed labor was going very well, progressed normally. Then uh, the next day, um, I got settled into my L&D room, and around 10 o'clock in the morning, um, labor was becoming pretty overwhelming. And uh, I decided to get the epidural. So I get the epidural around maybe 10 o'clock in the morning and decided to take a nap. Around lunchtime, I woke up and called my husband because he wasn't in my room. So I called him to check in on him. And he said he would be back in a few minutes after he was done eating his lunch. <laughs> then around um, af shortly after that, I went back to sleep. Then around maybe shortly after 4.30, I woke up and said, and well, I didn't say, I screamed, my heart is racing. And my husband then looks at the monitors and <clears throat> he looks at the monitors and they were reading nothing, which he didn't think too much of because uh, monitors slip all the time in labor, well, in any hospital, monitors slip all the time. So he proceeds to leave the room and go and get my L&D nurse, Christy. So Christy just so happened to be right outside my room uh, at the nurse's station, and they walked back into the room. And as they were walking back in, uh, my husband said, I kind of slumped over, and my eyes rolled back in my head. I since have gotten to, I like to say re-meet, my L&D nurse, Christy, because uh, I have no memory of my labor or delivery. My last vivid memory was August 23rd, uh, which was my daughter, Claire's. Uh, that would have been her second birthday. So, yeah, that was my last vivid memory. So, like I said, I have no memory of going to the hospital. Most of the month is September. Um, but Christy said as she walked into the room, she didn't really noticed that I was kind of slumped over, but she said like kind of in one swift motion, she grabbed my wrist to um, check my pulse and then grabbed the blood, the blood pressure cuff and kind of one swift motion to check my blood pressure. Then she noticed I didn't have a pulse and apparently she kind of grabbed my shoulders and yelled my name several times and tried to shake me and wake me up and I did not respond. So at that point is when she um, pressed the staff assist button. And my understanding is when they press that, um, most of the L&D staff comes. So several L&D staff came in 
my at that point my husband noticed they were moving our backs away from the bed and clearing the the um area around the bed so that uh, they could start working on me so my husband is amazing in crisis and thought oh that's something i can help with so he jumped in and started helping them move our stuff and um, get that area clear as fast as possible and then at that point he and my doula kind of sunk back into a corner because he knew if he kind of didn't make himself seen he could stay in the room longer So apparently after about three or four minutes, uh, I was still in cardiac or pulmonary cardiac arrest. And at that point, they uh, pressed the code blue button. And when they pressed the code blue button, um, an entire slew of people comes. The NICU team comes, the cardiac team comes, um, and yeah, just a lot of people. So at that point, they start prepping me for a C-section. The protocol is to get the baby out uh, within six minutes, not only to help the baby get oxygen, but it also helps the mom um, with CPR. It helps the blood circulation a little bit better when the baby is out. So they start to prep me for the C-section, and um, they get the get Chloe Ann out. Um, unfortunately, uh, when they first got her out, she was completely limp and not responding at all. So they did have to resuscitate her, uh, intubate her. But after, I don't know, maybe several minutes, she was starting to do a lot better. So they rushed her to the NICU and, um, actually let me back up a bit because, when the code blue was called and a lot more people came into the room someone yelled uh family in the room so then um another nurse um who unfortunately had had an afe a few months prior to my afe volunteered to escort my husband and my doula Brittany out of the room um i think it was a little too hard for her to see us another afe So my husband and my doula, Brittany, start walking down the hallway, and she's trying to escort them to the lobby of the um, L&D floor, and my husband found a bench and just collapsed, and he just couldn't go any further. I think the adrenaline had worn off, and he was just overwhelmed with emotion. At that point, um, so they sit in the uh, bench, but that was a good thing because uh, they were allowed to see Chloe Ann as she went up to the NICU. They were allowed to meet her in the hallway and, um, they let my husband kind of stick his hand in the incubator and touch her and then whisked her to the Ellen or excuse me, to the NICU. So my husband wanted to go with Chloe Ann because we had decided during my pregnancy, if anything happened, um, we would, Eli, my husband would go with uh, Chloe Ann and my doula would stay with me. However, the staff told him he needed to stay on the L&D floor in case decisions were needed to be made. So back in the, uh, in my L&D room, my husband was able to see uh, kind of the door frame of my room and he said it was so surreal. There were about, I don't know, 
35, 40 people standing outside of my room waiting to be called from the different specialties um, to try and resuscitate me. So after they got Chloe Ann um, delivered, they started um, trying to sew up my C-section scar, but at that point I was bleeding a lot. And so then the decision was made to uh, take me to an OR. Now my OB on call uh, was in another C-section when my AFE happened. Therefore, he couldn't was not available. But by the time, or he was not available when the AFE happened. However, when they decided to take me to the OR, he was finished with his C-section and was able to uh, meet um, meet my team in the OR. So at that point, um, Dr. Patil, who I credit with saving my life. <laughs> Um, decided to do a partial hysterectomy. So they took my uterus out. I was able to keep my ovaries, which was a blessing, so I wouldn't go into um, menopause. And uh, they get the uterus out, and it looked like, it seems like the bleeding was starting uh, to slow. And so they packed my stomach, and um, simultaneously, while Dr. Patil was working on my C-section scar, the cardiothoracic team realized that I had a hemoneumothorax and um, they um, decided to do a sternotomy to um, decompress that. So they were working on me at the same time and that surgery lasted about six hours or so. So late on the 19th, um, they packed me up. They left both my C-section scar and my uh, chest open. So they packed it and sent me to the CTICU. And at that point, my husband was allowed to see me. And I have asked several friends, family members, what was your first thought as you were walking in to see me, whatever stage that was? And some friends, that was when I was already home. Some friends, that was when I was still in the ICU. Some families, that was when I was in rehab. Like, it was all different stages throughout my um, AFE and uh, throughout my recovery. So my husband walks in the room, and he told me my first thought was, or his, excuse me, his first thought was, she's alive. And when I asked him that, I was like, wow, how, how, like, how amazing. I can only imagine the picture of him walking into that room. I mean, I must have had tubes. I obviously was intubated, so I had a tube coming out of my mouth. Um, I just was truly amazed that he was just so grateful that I was live, alive. He was not looking at the tubes or any um, anything else. The machines that were keeping me alive, he was just so grateful that I was alive. So fast forward another maybe hour or two, um, the staff determined that I was still internally bleeding. So I'm not sure at what point I went into what is called DIC. It stands for disassimilated intravascular coagulation. It's also known in the medical uh, realm, death is coming. 
So DIC is when you're bleeding so profusely that you bleed out all of your clotting factors. And therefore, after you're bleeding, bleeding, and bleeding, you no longer have clotting factors to clot your blood. So I'm not sure at what point I went into DIC. I'm not sure if it was after they did the C-section or after um, that first surgery. But they rushed me back to the OR to um, suction out the blood clots and um, the blood clots and the blood. And um, at that point, it was determined they needed to put me on ECMO. They could not stabilize my blood pressure and I would need life support to uh, help me. So after that surgery, the surgeon, uh, his name was Dr. Bada. He comes out and talks to my family and says, you know, I'm so sorry, we did have to put her on ECMO. And after my first surgery, my husband Eli had asked, well, after the last surgery, you said at least we didn't have to put her on ECMO. So after ECMO, what's the next step? And Dr. Bada said to them, I'm sorry to say there's nothing else we can do. This is all we can do for her. It's now up to her. And my mother-in-law piped in and said, now, well, now she's in God's hands. And our surgeon smiled and said, uh, what a wonderful place to be. And it truly was. Um, it gave me, well, now looking back, it gives me a lot of comfort that um, I had many medical staff and family and friends praying for me. So after that surgery, I was stable for several more hours, but still in critical condition. And I would need, I think it was two more surgeries to just kind of clean the areas, um, my C-section scar and my sternum scar, make sure there was no infection brewing, um, you know, clean out any uh, extra blood or clots or things like that. And so I think it was on day four, I, my C-section scar was finally able to be closed. And then um, a week, so day seven, I was able to have my um, sternum scar closed and I uh, my chest was closed during that same surgery. However, during that surgery, they found that I had a big blood clot blocking blood flow to my legs and my kidneys. So doctors, the doctors did talk about a w, double leg amputation and a kidney transplant. Thank God neither were needed. However, I do have a perfect match with having an identical twin. So I learned that through this ordeal. Um, so during that surgery, they also talked about uh, a fasciotomy, which is where they cut your skin and muscle and mine were, was potentially needed in my legs because um, my legs were so swollen, they were not getting blood flow. So thankfully the fasciotomy was not needed when they went to do that surgery again, or when they went to do that surgery again, they, so they had my husband sign the consent for the surgery and then he went back, the surgeon went back to the OR 
and they found a small pulse. So they called my husband and said, you know, we can proceed with the surgery. We still recommend the surgery. Um, however, if you want to see, wait and see what happens, we can do that too. So my husband decided to wait and see what happened. And thankfully, again, the fasciotomy was not needed. So during my vascular surgery, the best vascular surgery at that at uh, my hospital was able to perform my, um, they're called iliac uh, stents. They put stents in my groin and was, they were able to restore blood flow uh, to my legs. It was a huge blessing that the surgery to remove me from ECMO was moved up four hours because they found that clot four hours sooner. So that was another huge blessing. So I came off the ECMO on the seventh day. And then the next two days, I continued to approve. I would wake up for short periods of time and um, respond to commands. Although they found lesions on my spinal cord and they had talked about doing a craniotomy to decrease the pressure in my spinal column and around my brain. However, I had a brain bleed, a hematoma. So my husband opted not to do the craniotomy because if, um, if they decompressed the pressure in my brain and spinal column, it could have made the brain bleed worse. And my husband rationalized it as, well, paralysis is better than brain death. And the long-term effects of that is I do still get a lot of pain in my legs. Um, sometimes it's hard to walk. Um, I have to wear compression socks to um, alleviate some of that pain, and they help. Um, but, you know, like my husband said, that's better than brain death. So we're still grateful for that blessing as well. So then... Uh, after those couple more days in a coma, I was in a coma for a total of nine days. I, I woke up at our, I woke up on, um, or fully woke up on September 28th, which I count as my survivorsary. Cause that's the day that I remember waking up. I remember my husband coming to tell me what happened. I remember my OB coming to tell me what happened. And I remember our dear friends, Candace and Ron coming to visit me. So that's the day that I count as my survivorsary. So the, then the next day, they, the doctors, or excuse me, the doctors and nurses wanted to get me in a chair. And I saw that they brought this huge contraption over and I was like, hmm, what's that for? And, you know, they explained to me what I needed to do to sit up and uh, to get in the hover chair and all of that. And I was like, well, why do I need a hover chair? And then I sat up. And it was very um, crazy. I was so dizzy, nauseous, just wanted to lie back down. But I definitely wanted to get in that chair. It felt good to move my body. Um, so we get in the hover chair and I sit in the chair. And I, if I remember correctly, I had more visitors that day. I think it was my friend Amy surprised me. She lives in Georgia. So it was a huge surprise that she drove, out, drove down to see me Um and that was such a blessing. And I think that day my older sister Joy and my Aunt Pauline came to see me. I remember them standing in the doorway and um, waving to them and just so excited to have to see familiar faces. Um, so then the next day was Monday the 30th. Um, 
that was kind of a normal day. I think that they put me back in the chair again. And um, I think that either that Sunday or Monday, they had me do a breathing test while I was in bed. And I remember the respiratory therapist, the test took maybe about 45 minutes or so. And my husband sat with me so lovingly trying to encourage me, keep me calm, um, try to encourage me because my, my biggest struggle was taking a really deep breath. And unfortunately, the respiratory therapist told me I did not pass. And I remember in that moment just being crushed. Um, she told me that I would need a tracheotomy or yeah, a tracheotomy. And uh, I didn't want to have another surgery. I truly did not. And I remember just trying with all of my heart and all of my will and to still fail was, was a struggle. However, on October 1st, um, my husband came to visit me maybe around lunchtime or so, and the surgeon had him sign the consent for the tracheotomy, and surgery was scheduled for the next day at noon. And then during shift change, which was about, I don't know, six or seven at night, uh, I overheard my nurse, um, who was taking care of me that day. I think it was my nurse, Amanda. I overheard her saying, I think she's ready to be extubated. And I just remember thinking, yes, please, please. Yes, yes, yes. And I just prayed in that moment um, that they would at least let me try. And the night doctor came on shift and called my husband and said, you know, I think with her numbers, I think we could try. And my husband said, well, if what happens if she, what happens if uh, she can't do it? And the doctor said, we'll just do an emergency tracheotomy right at the bedside. My husband said, okay, let's try. So at that point, my husband was busy putting my girls to bed but then jumped in the car because he was hoping to make it before I was extubated. And I just remember a whole team of people. I mean, there were probably 10 people in my room coming in um, and explaining to me what they were going to do, what I needed to do, and that they were going to extubate me. And I just remember being so, so, so excited. And so they extubate me and... I don't remember if I struggled to breathe. I mean, I'm sure there was a bit of struggle. I remember they give you like a suction to suction out secretions out of your mouth because you're not really strong enough to swallow those yet when you're extubated. So they give, gave me a suction and told me like, you know, if if you have secretions in your mouth, you need to suction them up. Like don't swallow them or anything like that because they were afraid I was going to aspirate. So I used the suction a lot. I had this huge funny mask on my face, but honestly, nothing was going to wipe the smile off my face. At that point, uh, maybe a little bit while later, my husband walks in and I was able to whisper, hi, honey. And that was truly a special moment. It was just truly amazing to be able to talk again. And so at that point, we decided to FaceTime my parents and tell them the good news. And they were so excited for me. And I remember my mom asking me, do you want me to come back and help out? And I said, yes, absolutely. So 
and maybe another, I was in the ICU maybe another day or two and things continued to get well, um, continued to get better. I was able to sit in the chair again and I think, no, I don't think I started my PT evaluations and while well, I was still in the ICU. So I think on the third is when they decided to transfer me to the cardiac, um, the cardiac floor of the hospital. And I was no longer on oxygen. Um, I was doing great. So that's when they decided to transfer me. And prior to transferring me, they said that I needed to take a swallow test. And up to that point, um, they had given me uh, ice chips and water. But I'm not sure if maybe one of the, no the nurses noticed me coughing after drinking water. And maybe that's why they decided to do the swallow test. But it was a good thing. They said um, I did really, really well with solids and food, even like uh, jello. But when I tried to drink water or thin liquids, I would aspirate. So therefore, I had to have nectar-thick liquids. And I remember going back to my room and asking my nurse, like, hey, can I have my water? I'm really thirsty. And she said, you have to wait until we get the thickening, um, the thickening powder. And I remember being so upset and so disappointed, but I know she was trying to take care of me, and she did, she did her job very well. However, the nectar-thick liquids were disgusting. It kind of tasted like very, very diluted, like lemon Kool-Aid or something. I don't know. It was just gross. So then we go to the cardiac floor, and I meet my new doctor and nurses and all of that. And that day, they let me rest since it was such a long trip. Um, the hospital I was at was is absolutely massive, and it was about a 20-minute walk <laughs> from the uh, ICU to the cardiac floor. And I remember thinking I transferred hospitals because from the stroke, I was very, very confused. But I re remember thinking I transferred hospitals because the unit I was initially in was next to the pe pediatric unit. And I remember seeing like murals of trees and like ocean scenes on the walls. And I was like, oh, I'm outside. Like, this is great but I wasn't. <laughs> so I get to the cardiac floor and the next day I told my husband, I was like, oh, I transferred hospitals. He's like, no, honey, no, you didn't. Like I drove to the same hospital. I was like insistent. No, I transferred, like I went outside and he was like, okay, dear. Like he was really sweet to just, you know, let me believe my delusion. So when I get to the cardiac floor, they started doing um, OT and PT evaluations and speech evaluations because my voice was still extremely weak. Then they, um, when I did my PT evaluation, I remember my therapist came in, helped me get up and said, I want you to try and walk down the hall. So I get up and start walking slowly down the hall with the walker. And my therapist said, Kathy, can you pick up your right foot? And I remember thinking, hmm, I, I thought I was. Like, I didn't know it was dragging behind me. So I looked down, and sure enough, it was dragging behind me. And it took just all of my energy to just pick up my foot properly. So at that point, I asked to take a break. And my physical therapist said, yes, of course. And he let me sit on a, a bench by a window. Like, it was like a built-in window seat. And it was a little lower than your average chair, 
But when I was done resting, I remember trying to get up several times, like probably four times. And I just could not, my legs did not have the strength to propel me up. So my husband and my physical therapist helped me. And so at that point, it was determined that I would need to go to rehab to get stronger. And I remember the doctor coming in and breaking the news. And I was like, please, no, no, I don't want to go to rehab. I just want to go home. And my husband, who is normally a pretty quiet man, doesn't say a whole lot. Um, (laughs) He's a man of few words. And he said with a stern voice, Uh, he looked at me and then looked at the doctor and said with a stern voice, she's going to rehab. And so at that point, like I knew like this, this was going to happen whether I wanted it to or not. So I think maybe two or three days later is when I transferred to rehab. But when I was on the cardiac floor, I was, um, still having PTOT speech every day. But I remember on October 4th, I was able to finally meet Chloe Ann. Technically, I had met her when I was in the ICU in a coma, but I do not remember that. Uh, I was still intubated and sedated. However, when she came in the room in the incubator, uh, my husband did say my eyes lit up, so that was special. So like I said, on October 4th, I was finally able to meet her. I remember waking up that morning so excited. Um, They brought the incubator incubator for my daughter to come in while I was in the ICU I'd caught a cold and I didn't know this at the time but colds can be very very dangerous for newborns especially newborns who are preemies or have like a traumatic birth or anything like that so they brought her in in the incubator so unfortunately I wasn't able to touch her or um or hold her but I was able to see her and we all were still wearing our masks so we didn't spread the cold that I had caught. So another couple days later, uh, it was determined that the cold had passed um, since it had been two weeks since I was diagnosed with the cold and we were allowed to uh, take all of our masks off. And I remember my Uncle Pat just like ripping his off his face, so happy. Um, Yeah, that was a sweet moment. So then another couple day day or so later, they brought Chloe Ann to see me again. And this time she was able to come without the incubator. So that was super exciting. And I was able to look at her and touch her. I still don't hold her because I wasn't, honestly, I was afraid I was going to drop her. I was still extremely weak. I, you know, I still had that sternum scar that was healing and I was just afraid to hold her. Um, but it was still so precious and sweet just to see her and touch her and give her a kiss. It was really special. So then, um, I think it was a Thursday, I was transferred to inpatient rehab, um, ironically, at the hospital that I gave birth to my first daughter. And this facility was brand new at the time. It was an absolutely gorgeous facility. I was the first person to stay in my room, which I think is cool. And so I get transferred and um, I, you know, get settled in my new room, meet my nurses, all of that. And she explains, you know, I'll have three hours of rehab every day and I can rest between meals and appointments um, and therapy would start the next day. So that first day was hard. Um, They definitely pushed me a lot. And once I started moving my body a little bit more, 
um, my pain increased quite a bit, especially, uh, in my C-section scar and, uh, in my sternum scar. So that was hard. Uh, so they started to give me Tylenol to kind of try and help alleviate the pain and it helped a little bit, but it did definitely did not take it away. And so over the next several days, I was at an inpatient rehab for eight days. I had several visitors and uh, they even allowed my girls to come to some of my appointments, which was a lot of fun. And um, then after eight days, um, it was determined that I no longer needed rehab. I was allowed to walk short distances without my walker. Um, I was doing really well not using the wheelchair. I, I used the wheelchair if we were going long distances. Like when I went outside, I would try to use the wheelchair. Um, but we practiced walking on grass, walking on curbs. Um, yeah, and just rehab was really interesting. Um, I obviously never experienced something like that, but the therapists really do an amazing job to try and make it fun and creative. Like I remember one of my occupational therapists, once I was strong enough, we raced down the, uh, caf you know, obviously the cafeteria and the gym were in the same room. So obviously there was like a really long corridor. And so we were racing back and forth with each other and that was super, super fun. And that, you know, they had to make sure that I could get in and out of a car safely. I knew how to organize my pills um, because I was going home on a lot of medication. <laughs> um, so all of those things. But I really appreciated the way that the therapists truly do try to make it fun. So on October 18th, it was my discharge date. And I remember waking up that morning again, super, super excited and, um, I had one speech therapy appointment to do, and then my husband arrived maybe around 10 o'clock, and they told me I could be discharged between 11 and 12. And I remember as 11 approached, I was like getting anxious and starting to get hungry because I had not eaten lunch, and um, I think we were finally discharged around 12. And so we went to lunch in Winter Park, which is just a suburb of Orlando, and as we were driving through Winter Park, my husband pulled into the farmer's market, which is the building um, that we got married in. And at that point, he decided to give me back my rings. And I think I thought that was so special. So then we had to lunch uh, at the Coop, which is the best chicken place in town. And after lunch, we go home. And I knew my friend Dixie had... Um, had planned some sort of party for my homecoming. However, I never could have expected uh, the amount of people who showed up when we turned the corner to my house. Coming off the highway, um, the, the highway is only about a mile or so from our neighborhood, and I started to finally see some familiar faces and got even more excited. And we round the corner in our neighborhood, and I see even more familiar faces, and there were people lining the street all the way down to our house. Um, our neighborhood is on the smaller side with only about 40, 45 houses, but still to see about 40 people welcoming me home with sa uh, signs and balloons and noisemakers and cheering. And uh, it was just such an amazing moment. And I got out of the car 
and gave a hug to every single person. I was just so grateful that they were welcoming welcoming me home. So at that point, uh, my dear friend Cynthia sang a homily and our pastor prayed over us. And that was enough excitement for me. I was exhausted. And I told everyone, yeah, I'm going to go inside and take a nap. I walk in the door and our foyer is literally filled with balloons. There were so many balloons. I think my friend Dixie had gone to Party City and told them, I need every single pink, white, and gold balloon that you have. (laughs) And uh, if I remember correctly, she had to do, I think it was four trips back and forth. Uh, so that she could get all the balloons to our house. Thankfully, we don't live very far from Party City. (laughs) So then I come inside and sit down on a couch, and my dear friend Maxine showed up, and she she said, I'm so sorry I'm late. And I was like, no, I'm so thankful that you're here. And I was able to give her a hug, and uh, it was just such a sweet moment. So I remember taking a selfie and sending it to my family, like just so excited. I was sitting on my own couch, and nothing... um, could compare to that moment. It was just truly amazing. And so then I decided to take a nap and, um, yeah. And then we started my recovery the next day. I would, I started in home PT, OT and speech. And I would have that, I think it was three times a week at the time. And I started to progress really, really well. Um, especially considering everything I'd been through the previous month and, However, I would need several more rounds of PT, OT, and speech um, to even get back to some semblance of a quote-unquote normal life. So I'm going to wrap up here because the recovery part of my birth story is much longer. Still almost two and a half years later, I'm still recovering. And um, especially from the stroke, the stroke has been the hardest part to recover from. And so this is going to wrap up part one of my birth story. Thank you so much for listening to the Twinkie Chronicles podcast, where two twins are shedding light on the childbearing years. 